Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matišar, and I work as the Deputy Head of Forehand Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Some people claim that the American invasion of Iraq 20 years ago started what could be called the post-truth world. Robert E. Kelly had been an International Atomic Energy Agency inspector in Iraq in 1992-93, and he was there also in the final months before the 2003 invasion. We talked about his experience, his work, and how his team had to deal with leaks to the press from the CIA that ended up being great big lies. Kelly is a Distinguished Associate Fellow at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Listen to our conversation and stay tuned as the next episode of my podcast will be also related to the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, as I talked to Fred Wellman, who did tours in Operation Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom, and was also a spokesman for General David Petraeus and General Marty Dempsey in Iraq. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Kids usually don't dream about becoming weapons of mass destruction inspectors. How did you get into this job, if I may ask? Well, I worked at Livermore and Los Alamos, the National Nuclear Weapons Laboratories, for my career. And in... Um, Around uh, 1980, I went into intelligence. We were doing intelligence on foreign nuclear weapon systems. And so when it finally came around to um, the problems in Iraq, I was an obvious choice for someone to go on that and to look at their weapons implications. In addition to which, I was part of the Nuclear Emergency Search Team, which is an organization in the U.S. that is supposed to seek out and disable foreign nuclear weapons or terrorist nuclear weapons. And so a lot of field experience and a lot of knowledge in the subject area. Yes, an obvious choice, as you said. So let's talk about Iraq now. First, you had been an International Atomic Energy Agency inspector in the country from 1992 to 1993. In 1998, Iraq stopped cooperation with the inspections. At that time, how confident were you that Saddam Hussein's regime destroyed its WMD programs? Well, to be clear, uh, I was a director of the IAEA in 92 and 93. I went back to the United States in 93. I personally was in charge of blowing up buildings and destroying equipment from the previous program. And I didn't have to uh, just imagine that when we would go to people like the CIA and say, we'd like to give you more information about the program and what we found maybe write it up and do a history, their answer was, the program is dead, it's gone, Uh, we don't need to waste our money on that. Uh, They were becoming more interested in other problems like North Korea and Iran. In answer to your question, I was very confident that the program had been destroyed. The program was dead according to just about everybody we knew. The only thing that changed then was the attacks of 9-11, the attacks on New York and Washington, caused a new political view of the world, and that brought in a bunch of new people who weren't very familiar with what had happened in 1990s, 91, 92, and they were kind of reinventing all the problems. By the way, have you ever met Saddam 
Absolutely and, not. I, mm-hmm. I never met Saddam Hussein, and I, I didn't really want to. Uh, we dealt some with Tarek Aziz, who was the uh, foreign minister and the vice president at times. Very interesting man, very very fun to work with, very challenging to work with. But no, I never saw Saddam, and I'm glad I didn't. How did you perceive his regime? Well, what we knew about his regime, we learned from media sources and other sources, but it wasn't of particular interest to us. We were so busy doing technical things, trying to find evidence of a nuclear weapons program, that whether he was a brutal dictator or a nice dictator didn't bother too much for us. I was certainly surprised when I went there in 1991 to see that the country seemed to run pretty smoothly and it had a lot of good infrastructure. But that doesn't mean it was a safe place to live or a, a good place to live. In your article for CIPRI, with the title 20 years ago in Iraq, ignoring the expert weapons inspectors proved to be a fatal mistake, you wrote that you were in Iraq in the final months before the 2003 invasion. As deputy for analysis of the IAEA action team tasked with the nuclear side of the weapons inspections, what was your main responsibility back then? It was to collect all of the information that was available to try to analyze that information with the help of other people and to plan for the possibility of going back for inspections. I first returned to the IAEA in 2001, just before 9-11. And when I returned to the IAEA, I never expected to go back to Iraq again. And then when the 9-11 events happened, we didn't particularly believe that Weapons of mass destruction had anything to do with the second war that was coming. Um, we were quite sure there was nothing there, but we knew we were going to be drawn into it. So you went there also with the experience from the 90s. Was there anything that was surprising for you? Or basically what you saw also in 2002, 2003 in Iraq just uh, confirmed the work you did in the 90s? In the period prior to the inspections, there were really two things. One was we developed our own information from newspapers, open source. Some of the defectors were out there and say, well, here's something we don't understand. It might be true. This is something we have to check. And those were usually not very significant or large things, but we were very excited about going back and checking them. For example, if you see satellite imagery of a building that is being repaired or something, and you knew what it used to do, then you'd be very interested in going back and seeing what they've been doing. None of those things, when we went back, proved to be very important. But the other side of it was the Americans, uh, but mostly Americans, brought us these two stories, one about some aluminum tubes that were going to be used to make centrifuges to enrich uranium for bombs, and the other was the idea that uh, Iraq was going to buy uranium from Niger. Now, both of those stories were pretty stupid on the face of them. We'd already investigated the aluminum tubes. Uh, I wasn't there personally. In the middle 1990s, the nuclear people and the missile people got together and examined 50,000 of those tubes that were already in Iraq. It wasn't that they were trying to buy them. They already had them. And they came to the conclusion they had nothing to do with missiles. They were rockets, not missiles. And they had nothing to do with nuclear So when the CIA brought up this story that these tubes were important, we were pushed against the wall because they leaked the story to the New York Times. And when the New York Times and the public are asking you, why aren't you doing something about this? You have to go take it seriously and you have to go through very carefully and show that the story is a great big lie. 
And the story about the uranium coming from Africa was even worse because the story didn't make any sense at all. And because they knew that we would say that if we, we said saw the documents and went public, they wouldn't show us the documents they had at CIA. Uh, they held the documents back and kept saying Iraq is trying to buy uranium from Niger, and uh, this is a bad sign. And we said, but that's silly. They already have more uranium than you're talking about. And this story isn't, isn't true. It doesn't make any kind of sense. And where that got resolved was there were some people in the State Department who leaked the documents to IAEA, to my boss and to me, and said, why don't you guys analyze this story and tell what it means? And it took my boss, oh, the better part of three or four hours to go through the documents and point out the forgeries, whiteouts, names of people who were dead, who had signed letters and things like that. I mean, it, it was child's play to show they were forgeries. But those were the two things that we had to do because the public expected this too, and they didn't know that CIA was lying. There was also another theory that Saddam's regime moved the weapons of mass destruction from Iraq to abroad. But did you check this? Was it easy to dismiss? It was very easy to dismiss the idea that he moved the nuclear program. First, because there was no nuclear program. Second is because there were um, a number of people that uh, had been involved in the old nuclear program. We knew them. We were talking to them on a regular basis. And maybe kind of one of the funny ones, I remember some general say, saying, we're seeing all these trucks go to Syria. And we said, don't you understand those trucks are filled with antiques? They're filled with silver. They're filled with Persian carpets because they know what happened the last time the U.S. invaded. All of that stuff got uh, stolen and rifled. And so it was pretty darn obvious. I mean, let's say that it was 99.999% obvious there was no nuclear program and it wasn't being moved. The former U.S. National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley just said for CNN that different intel on Iraq's WMD would have meant a very different outcome regarding the invasion. But does the argument that the intelligence agency thought that Saddam still has something withstand any scrutiny? First, we know that the intelligence community had, in fact, various views on that matter. And second, your team has been feeding the U.N. Security Council with the info from the ground. So how do you react on statements like Headley's? I react very negatively because all intelligence did not show that. In fact, the best intelligence was the intelligence of inspectors on the ground. First, it was inspectors who'd been there from 91 all the way up to 98. Then it was people looking at data from 98 to 2001. And then we went back in person. So they were ignoring the best intelligence, the intelligence of people who were there. You, you mentioned speaking at the Security Council, I think that's an important point. A lot of people, particularly in the United States, have a very poor opinion of the United Nations. They don't like the United Nations. They, they have their various reasons to think it's a, a bad organization. And so that meant that inspectors of the IAEA and the United Nations must be a bunch of, of know-nothing bureaucrats who do bean counting. And what they missed was at least half the inspectors that we took on these things, the U.S. played a very large role. And the people like I had very high-level security clearances. We worked with the best intelligence information. And all of us had been involved in things like building bombs our whole lives. I mentioned the NEST team earlier. Just about everyone who was an inspector was also part of the American anti-terrorist team for nuclear weapons. These were very experienced people. But I think somewhere the social thing got in the way 
that people in Washington said, well, if these are UN people, we can ignore them. That's what I think you see in these statements like from Hadley. Bob, so when you heard what politicians, but also some people from the intelligence community are saying about your work, did you discuss this with some of your colleagues from the intel circles? I'm asking this because you said that just a few years prior to this, these people admitted that Saddam's nuclear program is dead. The short answer is no. We didn't have very many contacts. The contacts were prohibited. We, there were barriers put up for us talking to people. And so unlike in 1991, where it was a very cooperative activity, particularly the the coordination with the United States was very poor. Now, we did talk to other governments and they, and people who came to visit us and give us information at all were actually rather cooperative. And I, I can think certainly in one case of a country whose very existence is threatened by uh, nuclear in the Middle East, their analysts were actually very honest with us and gave us information that showed there was nothing happening. They gave us information that and gave us enough information that when we went to Baghdad, we went to places and we found nothing. That is to say, we actually, I have to turn that around. It wasn't that we found nothing, it was that we found what we were looking for and it was not important. If I can put it that way. I'll give you an example with the U.S. As the war was starting again, or as the interest in the war was starting in the summer of 2002, in 2002, in the summer, we had a briefing from the United States. It was a pretty small, low-level briefing, but the guy who was leading it was someone we knew from the 90s, and he had two new guys with him. And the new guys started showing us satellite pictures of buildings and things, and telling us what was happening. And we had to explain to them, the buildings that you've labeled are the wrong buildings. That's not the site. Uh, your information is old, it's out of date, and it's incorrect. And that was what we were facing. When we followed up on many of their leads, they were kind of garbage. May I also ask you a couple of a little bit more, let's say, political questions? Basically, I would like to know your view. The Bush administration simply lied and that led to the war and breaking norms of the UN Charter and international law. Is this the view you are holding? I, I'm not a really political person. I don't know about the UN Charter and how that's interpreted. I know that the information that was provided to us was extremely poor, poorly sourced, poorly double-checked, and that either there was incompetence or intentional misleading of us. And... From your perspective and perspective of your expertise, what is the main legacy of the Iraq war? Again, I'll approach it from a technical point of view. I would point out that I think communications between the IAEA, the Security Council, and the U.S., I'm not sure we communicated well to the Security Council either, but the communication was extremely poor and the information was received poorly. I think you also are dealing with um, kind of the old idea that if you don't have a human source in Saddam's cabinet who can tell you what he's thinking and what he's eating, uh, you don't have a good spy. We were different kinds of inspectors. We were weighing things, measuring things, taking chemical samples, traveling around. We did an awful lot with export and import to find out where they got things. These were sort of provable physical facts. And I think there is there tends to be too much of this social science kind of analysis saying, well, you know, they think this because they're opposed to that. And if this guy joins the cabinet, this will happen. Otherwise, there'll be a civil war. 
you saw the U.S. relying on people like the Iraq National Congress and Ahmed Chalabi. Uh, Chalabi was a favorite of the Iranians, and he was trying to ingratiate himself with the Americans. We were completely different from that kind of information. I remember I went to the Iraq National Congress and said, hey, we're on the same team here. We're trying to find out what's going on. Will you help us? And the answer was no. They didn't want people like us getting involved because we might have facts and data. To wrap it up, what do you think is the main legacy of the Iraq war? And do you think that this legacy at least partly undermines the West's criticism of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? There is also a nuclear element here with Zaporozhia plant and Putin bragging about nukes. And I don't want to put everything in one basket, and I think we should avoid blind whataboutism. But some people even claim that, let's say, post-truth world started with the Iraq war. I'm going to say I don't feel qualified to answer that question. I have lots and lots of opinions on Zaporizhia and what's going on there and, and what the IAEA is doing, but I don't feel that I can extrapolate my personal feelings to trying to psychoanalyze Putin or what he's doing. That's not on my table. What I would say is 20 years later, almost everybody has forgotten the lessons learned in Iraq. And the um, and when I start reading stories about Iraq, the majority of them just didn't pay attention or learn what we learned. Mm-hmm. We went, we got all this information, and, and I would criticize the IAEA for never writing it up and summarizing it and say, this is what we found. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.